Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto. We're continuing on in the series, Early Christian Portraits of Jesus. And today we move on to the Gospel of Luke's portrayal of Jesus. We will see that the Gospel of Luke portrays Jesus primarily as a prophet like Elijah. So the types from the Hebrew Bible, as with Matthew's Gospel, for example, types from the Hebrew Bible play an important role in the way in which Jesus is cast within this ancient biography. But today's episode needs to deal first of all with introductory issues regarding Luke's Gospel and needs to deal with the fact that Luke is, in fact, volume one of two volumes, Luke Acts. In particular, we need to consider the fact that although this is an ancient biography like the other ones we've been looking at, simultaneously the Gospel of Luke and its sequel, Acts, are ancient history writing. They fit within the context of the genre of historiography in the ancient context, not modern historiography, but ancient historiography. And so today's episode deals quite a bit with these introductory issues and with making sense of Luke Acts as a two-volume work of ancient history writing comparable to things like the Judean historian Josephus's works in the late first century. I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Feel free to consult my website, philipharland.com, for further information about early Christianity and other religions in the Roman Empire. One of my main points for today is how Luke portrays Jesus. Namely, Luke portrays Jesus as an ideal prophet like the ancient prophets. It's a prophet like Elijah. In fact, Luke seems to harp on that particular type from the past, Elijah, in the way that he tells the story of Jesus, so that Jesus turns out looking a lot like a new Elijah. You may remember from the other Gospels we looked at that Elijah comes up in the narratives themselves quite often. But Mark and Matthew tend towards telling the story in a way that John the Baptist ends up being the prophet like Elijah. Luke seems to tend away from stereotyping John the Baptist as a new Elijah and instead tends toward stereotyping Jesus as the new Elijah, the ideal prophet. So that's the primary portrayal of Jesus, but there's a whole lot of other things going on in Luke's gospel in terms of models that are affecting how he tells the story of Jesus and titles that he gives him give away some of these other elements. One of them that I'm going to draw your attention to is Savior. Luke's Gospel, so far, is the only one that actually uses that title. And there are two ways in which Savior can be understood in Luke's Gospel, two cultural contexts within it which it can be understood. Obviously, there's the idea of the prophet that Jesus is, is a Savior for the people. And by salvation, they don't mean life after death. When people are talking about people being saved, quite often they mean literally being saved from illness, literally being saved from death literally being saved from foreign occupation. Salvation is a down-to-earth thing that God brings. And in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is portrayed as a Savior, a prophet who is a Savior who brings salvation. Now, Savior has that context within Judaism. For example, Moses would sometimes be portrayed as the Savior of his people in the sense of bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, down-to-earth salvation, God using Moses to bring salvation to the Israelites. However, Luke's portrait of Jesus is cross-cultural in some ways. Seems to use the categories that would be familiar to Greeks and Romans, while also using categories very much that are very familiar to Judeans, 
in portraying Jesus. And the phrase Savior in the Greco-Roman world is very common. You would come across it if you're literate, or if you could find someone to read some monuments for you. You would come across it all over the place on those inscriptions you learned about that are everywhere in the cities of the Roman Empire. Often benefactors, remember benefaction? The whole system of how the culture functions in the Roman Empire is benefaction and honors, benefaction and honors. Gods, emperors, rulers, city rulers, wealthy people giving good gifts, giving gifts to people, benefactions. And in return, people honoring them with appropriate honors, depending on whether they're just a person, an emperor, or a god. There's different honors for those different levels. One of the titles that you'll often see given to benefactors, especially to emperors and to gods, in inscriptions everywhere where Luke was living, would be Savior. In fact, there's a contemporary inscription, approximately contemporary to Jesus, that labels Augustus as a Savior in this way. And this is a quote from that inscription that gives him all kinds of honors for what he has done, for all the benefactions, for the good things he has done, including bringing salvation. Providence has in her beneficence granted us a savior. There's the idea that Providence is a goddess who has given the benefaction of giving people Augustus. And then Augustus has become a benefactor. Providence has in her beneficence granted us a savior who has made war to cease and who shall put everything in peaceful order. With the result that the birthday of our God, Augustus, signaled the beginning of the good news for the world because of him. Guess what that good news phrase is in the original Greek? Euangelion. The same term we are familiar with from the Christian documents talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of Augustus on an inscription. I'm saying that these categories that Luke is using are common to the Greco-Roman world. And it seems that the way he portrays Jesus speaks to both Greeks and Romans and to Judeans. And he seems that the title Soter, Savior, is the best example of something that would have that cross-cultural implication for the potential audience of this gospel. So we'll get into this in more detail today. That's the main point of today, is to look at this portrait of Jesus as a prophet using the Judean typology of the prophet like Elijah, while simultaneously seeing him as a Savior, and we'll see soon a whole lot of other things as well. But those are the primary ones I wanted to draw your attention to, to help you have a way of getting your mind around Luke. Let's get into some introductory matters about Luke. The writing we call the Gospel of Luke is actually the first volume of two volumes, and the second volume came to be called the Acts of the Apostles, the Deeds of the Apostles. Basically, volume one is the story of Jesus, a biography of Jesus, and volume two is the story of the early church. The whole focus of Luke-Acts is to show the ways in which belief in this prophet like Elijah, Jesus, that is portrayed in volume 1, spreads from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, Acts. And in volume 2, there's two main protagonists. Volume 1 has one protagonist, Jesus. Volume 2 has two main protagonists, Peter in the first half and Paul in the second half. Peter is instrumental in the belief in this prophet like Elijah, who is the Messiah, spreading from Jerusalem to Judea to get, begin to get into Samaria, Samaria geographically. And then Paul 
functions to bring that message about this prophet like Elijah, who is the anointed one, beyond Israel out into the Mediterranean world and to the ends of the earth. Let's talk about authorship. Uh, in this case, it's not Papias that gives us a tradition about who wrote Luke. In this case, it's the Muratorian Canon. The Muratorian Canon is from about 170 CE. And that's the place at which we have the Gospel of Luke being attributed to Luke and it being identified with a particular figure that is known within early Christianity from other sources. Namely, a guy named Luke, who was also a physician, who is referred to in places like Philemon and other places in the New Testament. The third book of the Gospel is that according to Luke. Luke, the well-known physician after the ascension of Christ, when Paul had taken him as one zealous for the law, composed it in his own name, according to belief. Yet he himself had not seen the Lord in the flesh, and therefore, as he was able to ascertain events, so indeed he begins to tell the story from the birth of John. So there you have one of the earliest references that tries to give, make some sense of authorship for this gospel. Remember that this is a hundred years after the gospel is written, approximately. Once again, it's difficult to be secure in using this as historical information. We have no other confirmation of this. We have no way of confirming it. However, there's something within Luke-Acts that has often been used to suggest that this tradition may be true. What I'm referring to is in Volume 2, there are several passages that have to do with Paul traveling around places. And in those passages where it's narrating Paul going from here to there and taking a ship and having a shipwreck, etc., there's several of those sort of travel narratives where the first person is used. We went from such and such to this place. We. There's been a lot of debate and a lot of analysis of these we passages, as they're called, within Luke-Acts. There are plenty of scholars who doubt that that should be a confirmation that Luke the physician in the Muratorian canon is the author of that document. But there are different ways of making sense of the we passages. We won't go into it in depth. But one is that it's the author trying to make the story more capturing by having it in the first person when he's relating traveling. So he could be putting in the first person. Another theory is maybe the source he is using is actually a travel narrative that someone else wrote, who was there, and that we're seeing preserved in Acts, something in the sources that Acts is using. And the third theory is that perhaps that it actually is that the author of Acts was there with Paul. I think that it's more likely a source that has the first person that is being used, or that Luke is making it more lively by using the first person. As usual, even though we don't know who wrote this gospel, we can make sense of who it is from the gospel itself, from the information we get internally. In this case, internal evidence points to the fact that Luke is very highly educated. Of the gospels in the New Testament, he has the richest vocabulary. We'll soon see he's also quite well versed in political terminology and that he's careful about what political titles he gives to different figures. He's also well-trained, we'll see in a moment, in history writing techniques. That he, like Thucydides, like Josephus, like other historians in this period, remember it's ancient history, not modern history, but nonetheless, he writes in the format of an ancient historian. 
He also seems to be culturally speaking, as I mentioned in his portrait of Jesus, crossing lines and being cross-cultural. He knows how to express things in terms that might make sense to a Greek audience, as well as being very well-versed in Judean ideas, including the expectation of a prophet like Elijah. The subtle ways in which he builds that into his story shows how familiar he is with a book like Isaiah. Potentially, is a Judean who's Hellenized, or he's a Hellenistic guy who's Judaized. Date-wise, most scholars would place this in the 80s or 90s CE, partly for the same reasons we've outlined for Matthew. Let's talk about genre a little bit here. When I introduced the Gospels, before we started getting into them, I emphasized the fact that these Gospels are examples, are instances of ancient biographies, and we went into the details of what an ancient biography was in the Greco-Roman world, that other authors are doing these lives of people in the Greco-Roman world. Luke can be understood as an ancient biography in the same way that Matthew and Mark have been. However, the thing to remember about genre analysis, the thing to remember about categorizing writings in antiquity as a certain type of writing, is that there's some fluidity in genres. The genre mixture that we're getting in Luke is a mixture of an ancient biography and an ancient history writing, historiography. You could look to Plutarch as another example of this going on. Plutarch writes his lives, however, the way in which he writes them is similar to how history is written by some other authors. And it's hard to draw stark lines between the different genres in antiquity. And even the authors themselves feel free to move between genres in the process of primarily doing an ancient biography, nonetheless doing it as history. Let me point to you, though, some of the things that draw attention to this ancient history writing status of Luke-Acts, the two-volume work. There are four main characteristics here I want to draw your attention to. Characteristics of Luke-Acts that draw attention to its belonging, in part, within the context of ancient history writing at the time. Ancient history writing, let me remind you, is not modern history writing. And we've already got familiar with that. We've already had to look at Acts when we were dealing with Paul. And we found that we cannot expect an historian in the ancient context to produce what we want a historian in the modern context to produce. Ancient historians are not interested in objective reporting in the, the way we use the phrase objective reporting. Instead, they feel free to moralize, just like with the ancient biography as a genre, also with ancient history writing as a genre. The authors are explicitly moralizing. They're explicitly subjective. They are not attempting to be objective in the modern sense, even though they'll sometimes use language that sounds like claims of objectivity. They don't mean it in the same way we would say a historian has to be objective. And this will illustrate it, in fact, even the things I'm about to outline to you that are characteristic of ancient history writing and that are characteristic of Luke. First of all, prefaces. If you took a look at Luke's preface to both volume one and volume two, and then took a look at Thucydides, a historian of the Peloponnesian Wars, and then looked at the preface of Josephus, a Judean well-versed in Hellenistic history writing. If you look at their prefaces, you start to see commonalities among ancient history writings when it comes to what you expect in a preface. So let's take a look at it briefly, just so you have a sense of what an ancient history writing would begin like. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account 
of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who were from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. There are several elements here that are typical of ancient history writing. First of all, talking about how there are other accounts about the same topic that you are covering. Subtly or not so subtly, saying that those accounts are not satisfactory. Then going on to say that you are going to do a satisfactory account, in fact, the best account that's ever been written on the topic. That you will be using reliable sources that will confirm that your account is better than the ones that have come before you. All of these elements that we're seeing here are typical. If you look to the beginning of Josephus's Jewish War or Josephus's Jewish Antiquities, you will have these elements there. His prefaces are a lot longer, but the same elements are there. Let me go on to the next characteristic, speeches. Ancient history writing also involves creating speeches for the characters in your history. We have one, at least one case, where a historian explicitly explains how you do speeches when you do a history writing. Here's Thucydides. Thucydides is actually a person who was there when the Peloponnesian War took place, and then he writes a history about it. So he was actually there. He's an eyewitness of some things. Luke isn't claiming to be an eyewitness. He's saying he's using the sources of an eyewitness. But here is a guy who was an eyewitness talking about his technique when he's telling the history of the Peloponnesian War, what technique he uses when it comes to speeches. And it will illustrate for you what Luke is doing, what Josephus is doing when they have speeches in their histories. Here's Thucydides talking. In this history, I've made use of set speeches, some of which were delivered just before and others during the war. I have found it difficult to remember the precise words used in the speeches which I listened to myself. And my various informants have experienced the same difficulty. So my method has been, while keeping as closely as possible to the general sense of the words that were actually used, to make the speakers say what, in my opinion, was called for by each situation. That is the technique of an ancient historian. That's not what you would expect a modern historian to do, is it? To make the speakers say what, in my opinion, was called for by each situation. So they're narrating events, they're narrating situations, and that even is shaped by what they think about it and moralizing and all that. And on top of that, they think, okay, what kind of speech would fit this situation? And then they create a speech that fits the situation. As Thucydides is claiming here, he's actually, he was there sometimes, so maybe he's getting closer to what was actually said in some cases. Another thing you'll see in this two-volume work, Luke Acts, is exciting material, and that's what you usually expect in ancient history writing. Shipwrecks and activities like that are especially common to add spice to ancient history writing. Luke Acts is a specific kind of history writing that matches up well with Josephus that you're familiar with. Josephus, remember, was writing his histories in Greek to a Greek and Roman audience, trying to be apologetic, trying to be, give a defense of Judean culture, showing how it is superior and showing how it is valid and showing how Judeans should be accepted within the Greco-Roman world. And that that was one of the main purposes of Josephus's histories, both his Jewish war and his Antiquities of the Jews. The titles give it away, at least the second one does. 
He's defending Judean culture as a very ancient and therefore valid culture. This apologetic approach of a historian within a minority cultural group, Josephus, a Judean, writing a history to a broader context, and in the process defending that minority cultural group, is what is in common with Luke-Acts. With Luke-Acts, we once again have this apologetic spin, where it's an author who belongs to a minority cultural group in the Greco-Roman world, presents his history in a way that is an apology for that group, is a way of saying this group is valid, this group is not subversive, this group fits in the Greco-Roman world, this group can be accepted. So that apologetic element that you see in Josephus also comes across in this history, Luke-Acts, quite clearly. In terms of sources, we just read the preface where Luke claims to have eyewitness testimony, He also claims to be using other accounts that he thinks are inferior. And we know, in our theory at least, that Mark is one of those accounts that he feels is not quite adequate and that he's now going to write an orderly account that nonetheless still uses Mark as a source. We also know in our theory, remember it's a theory, that Q, another collection of the sayings of Jesus that Matthew happened to use, is used by Luke. Nonetheless, one of the things about Luke that stands out is just how much of Luke is not attested elsewhere. He has huge sections that are not in Mark, that are partly replicated in Q, but nonetheless that Luke has these long sections, what scholars call the little interpolation and the big interpolation that we're going to get into soon. Let me talk about distinctive features of Luke's gospel. This first one relates back to what we've just said about it being ancient history writing. Luke is concerned with historical context so that when he begins the life of birth of Jesus, he puts it in the context of who is ruling what district and then the context of what emperor is in charge. So he thinks in that broader political perspective when he's telling his history. We're going to get into this in detail, the second point that's a characteristic of Luke's gospel, the concern with outcasts. In fact, that's the uniting element in a way in the portrayal of Jesus that we'll see. Another thing that stands out in Luke, although the Spirit of God is there in other Gospels, the Holy Spirit, using that phrase, is repeatedly there, functioning as a character in both volumes, Luke and Acts. That the Holy Spirit does a whole lot of things in this narrative. The centrality of Jerusalem is a fourth main characteristic, distinctive characteristic of Luke's Gospel. Sure, all of the Gospels have to have Jesus end up in Jerusalem because that's where he's executed. However, Luke self-consciously has Jesus focused on Jerusalem. And that interpolation I mentioned is all about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And the other Gospels don't have it. So for about 10 chapters, Jesus journeys to Jerusalem in Luke. Jesus is focused on Jerusalem, he gets there, is executed, and then the movement that follows him begins in Jerusalem and goes to the ends of the earth. The central argument of volume two. There will be other distinctive features of Luke's gospel that we can look at as we begin to explore the narrative itself and the question of how Luke portrays Jesus. So that will do for now. Let's move on to the whole issue of the portrayal of Jesus in this ancient biography, the first volume of Luke Acts. There are a variety of models or types that are at work in how Luke portrays Jesus. We need to spend some time making more sense of some of the more dominant stereotypes and typologies and 
ideas that are at work in the way in which the Gospel of Luke portrays Jesus primarily as a prophet like Elijah. A prophet like Elijah who has come to bring, on behalf of God, salvation to the people. And that this salvation is brought primarily to the outcasts, to the sick, to the poor in society, according to Luke's portrayal of Jesus. We will unpack these issues concerning the portrayal of Jesus as the prophet like Elijah in Luke in the next episode. So I hope you return to continue on in the discussion of the Gospel of Luke's portrayal of Jesus next time, where we'll find Jesus portrayed in both Judean and Hellenistic terms. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this second series in the podcast is my own remix of portions of What You Are from the album Without Zero by Joie. This is copyright 2007 Real World Records, and it's used with permission under a Creative Commons type license.